I didn't ask for a shrink. That must have been somebody else. Also, that pudding isn't mine. Also, I'm wearing this suit today because I had a very important meeting this morning, and I don't have a crying problem. Hello, friends, and welcome along to Have You Seen This, the only podcast where the snozberries actually taste like snozberries. Joining me, as always, in this world of pure imagination, Mercer is definitely a wonka, which most certainly makes Brina willy. Chaps, how are you? <laughs> Not too bad. Oh, yeah, a bit underprepared, but yeah, I'm good. Good. Short but sweet. Love it. And hold on a minute. 15 episodes. We must have run out of guests. Not bloody likely. It's John Perry. John, how are you? Uh, I'm, I'm very well. Thank you for having me on. I, I'm not really a, a Wonka or the other version <laughs> of that. There you go. Right. So we're all present and correct then. And moving on, we ended last episode with a question. We're to start this episode with a question. And I pulled a brain and apparently made it far, far too easy. <laughs> so on Instagram, we had a correct answer from Sith Adventure. On Twitter, we had a correct answer from Jacob Cherian. And Jacob Grun with a good guess on Facebook, but I'm afraid Too Easy Club is not correct. <laughs> so what was the name of the club at the start of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom? I mean, we all know this. Yeah, yeah. This was, Perry, this... you know this, don't you? What's the question? Sorry. No. <laughs> Nice to see you being attentive, John. <laughs> the name of the club that Indiana escapes from at the start of Temple of Doom. Oh, it's uh, it's Obi Wan Club Obi Wan. It is Club, club. Obi Wan. Yeah, so I was far too easy on you. So hopefully, at the end of this episode, there'll be a slightly trickier question for you all. That isn't the only Star Wars reference in the Indiana Jones trilogy, and I was wondering if you knew, as a counter question, what the other reference is, all the other famous reference. Does R2-D2 appear as a hieroglyph somewhere? That's it. Yeah, in Raiders of the Lost Ark, when he's uh, searching for the, the Ark of the Covenant. R2-D2 is also, also in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. So when the, the giant spaceship mm. finally appears, there's a shot of Richard Dreyfuss is looking back as it's about to come over the top of the mountain. And there's a close-up as it starts to move. And you can see upside down, sort of like magnetised on the underside of it, there's an R2-D2. Ben, just as a side note, can we have a bell every time Breen mentions Richard Dreyfuss? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he does like to mention him a lot. I'm sure I saw E.T. in one of the Star Wars films. Wasn't he in one of the... Uh... Yeah, one of the delegates in yeah. uh, oh, the brilliant. Phantom... <laughs> <laughs> uh, <menace>. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm uh, you know my feelings on the Phantom Menace. So here we go. We're all here. Question has been posed and answered. So let's move on then with the podcast. And we start the show with our big picks from the small screen. A highlight of two or three things we've watched or streamed outside of the two films in review. And we love to start with our guest. So John, what's been keeping you entertained? I've watched quite a lot this week, to be perfectly honest with you. I was lucky enough to see The Father, which I watched with my family. It's incredible. I won't go into too much about it because I'm sure you'll be discussing it in future podcasts. I also uh, rented Kong versus Godzilla, which uh, <laughs> yeah. I was really not into, but it grew on me. And by the end of it, I had a real blast and I, I really enjoyed it. I watched Minari, which I love Korean cinema, but American Korean cinema is really boring but nice, Paul. <laughs> Directed straight to Breen. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I know you lived it, but uh, I uh, I had a good rest, a good sleep. I, you know, I was relaxed and uh, <laughs> it, wasn't, 
<laughs> I like the old granny. She was great. But yeah. then it was just a bit dull. Sorry, Altitude. Sorry, Hamish. That's just my opinion. That's fair. Wow. All opinions welcome here, even if they're wrong. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I listen to your opinion, not Paul, so yeah, fine. <laughs> so there may be a vicious rumour circulating that I hate watch or I love to complain about terrible films that I see from week to week. I don't know who started that rumour. <laughs> Since the last episode, I've seen some real plop. So from now on, I'm going to keep it nice and positive and stick to actual recommendations. So continuing my quest to watch films I've never seen but really should have, this week I treated myself to Castaway. Never seen it, watched it this week, really enjoyed it. Wilson! (laughs) From the same year, I believe, I then watched Gore Verbinski's The Mexican with Brad Pitt and Julia Roberts and I found that charming. I thought it was all right made me laugh it moved along at a pace john's face says something completely different didn't like it john no i thought it was rubbish sorry oh fair (laughs) moving on then (laughs) and finally on sky cinema i watched christian bale switch his accent seamlessly from cheeky cockney to yorkshire coal miner and back again in ford versus ferrari i thought this was a great watch really really loved this from start to finish such a great film yeah he wasn't quite Dick Van Dyke-esque in his accents, but I couldn't work out whether he was a Cockney or whether he was from Yorkshire or whether he was from somewhere in between. It kept flicking about. But a great, great film. He's from Birmingham. Is he? <laughs> I didn't... From Birmingham. And the expression in that movie, Round the Reekin, which you may have heard, is a reference to a hill, which is by my house that we cycle up. And you say to people, oh, send him round the Reekin, which means you go on a long ride around this hill. And that's the expression from that film, Round the Reekin. He's wow. From then Bale definitely needs to invest in a new dialect coach. (laughs) (laughs) That film is so, so good. I've watched it multiple times now. And the thing that really blows me away is that sound design. The cars just sound absolutely insane. And the way that it's shot, the the attention, the period detail, all those those colours really just pop off the screen. It's a great film. Yeah, it, it, it looks beautiful. The racing set pieces are absolutely stunning. The only thing that niggles me, and this is in every single American show, TV show, film, whatever, because they've got absolutely no concept of how to drive a manual car. So you hear 874 gear changes when there should be when there should be two. It's the only thing that niggles me slightly. So he's on a straight, he's doing the maximum revs, the maximum speed that car can do, and yet you still hear four gear changes. I just don't understand because Americans don't get manual cars. So that's it. It's my only slight niggle. I'm going to have to keep an eye out for that. It's my pick of the week on Sky Cinema, Ford versus Ferrari, if you haven't seen it. It's a good film. Awesome. I watched My Octopus Teacher from 2021. It's just dropped on Netflix. So this is a documentary which centers on Craig Foster, a South African documentary filmmaker who spends a year diving into the sea to forge a relationship with an octopus that lives in the kelp forest off the coast of South Africa. Have you guys seen this? I really like this. Yeah. Some elements of it definitely feel a bit forced. There's this moment in the film where he's got this map of the local area and it has this massive spider webs of like scribbles and stuff scrawled over. And then in the center of the map is this terrible picture of an octopus. And underneath it says my octopus teacher which is the name of the film that really took me out of the film there's like there's like lots of little other moments like that which just feel a bit manipulative from the filmmakers really like sort of get that emotional impact across but it just cheapened it because you can build what narrative you want in an edit room and i just didn't think it needed that because i felt he was a really engaging character by himself and this footage is absolutely unreal super super high detailed images of the seabed and as it goes on the octopus gets more and more confidence to come closer and closer to the camera as he's filming him yeah it's a it's a really sweet document 
documentary and it like has a really good message it's cool so despite those reservations i would highly recommend it have you seen this paul i've had it on my list for a while i just haven't got around to it yet it certainly stopped me ordering the wagamamba's uh, chili squid sean <laughs> <laughs> order it now after watching that. <laughs> it hasn't for me if anything i'm ordering more can't get enough of that shit i'm gonna do a bit of a hammond here and talk about something i watched and absolutely hated i caught up with velvet goldmine have you guys seen this film Vel- Goldmine, the one with you and McGregor. Yeah. Shite. <laughs> it's, it's so bad. I didn't like it at the time. It's so bad. So this is the Todd Haynes film from 1998, which portrays two fictitious glam rock stars loosely based on David Bowie and Iggy Pop. It was divisive at the time it came out. Critics really hated it. But since then, people are like banging on about it. It's got a real cult following. I have absolutely no idea why. It just it has a really weird mix of fictional bands and musicians, but then it will occasionally drop in real bands like The Beatles. And I found it so jarring. Christian Bell, a very young Christian Bell, plays a miserable journalist trying to track down the current whereabouts of this fictional Bowie. And it just ends up with these long interview pieces where they just bore on about the first time that this fake Bowie went to a gig or bought a record. I just did not care. I actually stopped watching it. I usually sit everything out, but I was so aggressively unengaged by this film. I found myself staring at the wallpaper above the screen going, oh, there's a bit of a dent there. That's <laughs> that's interesting. I've never spotted that before. Um, yeah, such a shame. I love Haynes' other work. Like, Carol is literally one of my favourite films of all time. Radiohead did the soundtrack as well, and they're my favourite band, but even the soundtrack was meh. Yeah, really awful film hated it so yeah so i watched uh, godzilla versus kong as well it was all right it, obviously these things they lose everything from not being on a big screen it loses a massive amount of the impact the cgi was great i loved the opening shot of kong just lying there sl- sort of sleeping or snoozing just woken up but as with all of these things the humans are boring and rubbish and it was it was too long for me but i enjoyed it for what it was but it, it needs the big screen as well for you john to so say your mate scott adkins i watched avengement right sir. which is on netflix really really enjoyed it I, I wasn't expecting to enjoy it as much as i did my god is it a violent film yes. fight choreography as you would expect with scott adkins is always very good he was really engaging a very different role for him yeah. i thought he he was really good uh it, in that movie it was a good cast around him so I enjoyed that I watched a documentary that dropped on Prime called The Dissident by the same guy that did the documentary Icarus that we've talked about in the past it's about Jamal Khashoggi who was the Saudi journalist who in 2018 went into the Saudi consulate in Turkey and was assassinated in the embassy and they tried the government tried to cover it up and then it became a big international incident it is an absolutely superb documentary nice. it was nominated for the BAFTA as you expect from Fogel who did Icarus as well it's a really thorough really well-rounded job it will make you so angry <laughs> that, that nothing occurred ultimately it's such a fa- it's almost two hour documentary and it's fascinating from start to finish drop whatever you're doing and watch the dissident it is absolutely superb but hammond obviously being a documentary fan you will just revel in this so yeah the dissident definitely watch it fantastic top recommendation i'll be sure to give that a watch i, I was the first leading man in, in the movie having starred in white chicks then this movie marked, marked the beginning of motion pictures white chicks creating a sensation great some Good recommendations all round then. So on to our regular show post starter, which is our box office refund. And it's over to Mercer to scrape the barrel again. <laughs> <laughs> Keep on scraping. So the BAFTAs happened. Some people did slash didn't win awards. The socially distant ceremony took place on the 11th of April at the Royal Albert Hall with most of the nominees zooming in. Big winners of the night were Nomadland and Promising Young Woman. The former scooped four prizes, including Best Film, Best Actress for its star, Frances McDormand and for Best Director. So that made Chloe Zhao only the second woman 
to ever win Best Director in the 53-year history of the BAFTAs. Ouch. I'm sure that won't be the case moving forward. Yeah, any takeaways from that? The frustrating thing with the BAFTAs is that so many nominees are films that aren't available for the regular public to see. Mm. You know, Nomadland being one of the promising young women are the two films that we're all, we've talked about for weeks. They're fortunate people. You know, Claire talked about the fact she'd seen them all. John, obviously you've seen The Father, which is a get a father's another example of a BAFTA winner that, that we haven't had an opportunity to see yet. So that, that for me was the frustration is that there's these amazing awards going out to seemingly amazing films that we've had absolutely no access to yet. But you'll get access to them. We, we will, yeah. But The best film that won the foreign drama or foreign film, Another Round, is by far oh, yeah. the best film I have seen this year. It is great. I honestly can't go on about this enough. It's fantastic. Wait, wait till June when that comes out. You are going to have a blast. We're going to get Promising Young Woman on Sky. That drops this week, I think, because of that deal mm-hmm. with Lionsgate. And then obviously Nomadland is dropping on Disney Plus in the UK at the end of April as well. So we will mm-hmm. see those films, but just not where we'd like to see them. Not to flog a dead horse. Warner Media CEO admits company stumbled into announcement in 2021 that the film's shifting to HBO Max. So in a new interview with Vox's Recode podcast, Jason Killer, CEO of Warner Media, admits the company could have approached the announcement differently by opening up more dialogue with filmmakers and talent. There's no doubt that it was a bumpy ride back in early December of last year, he said, adding that if he could do it all over again, he would likely give more of an advance warning to members of Hollywood's elite before dropping the bomb. This new insight from Killer comes off the back of rumblings at Warner's HQ that there is still a possibility that June, due for simultaneous release of the tail end of 2021 on HBO Max and in cinemas, might just stick to its original theatrical release only plan. With Godzilla vs. Kong's promising opening week numbers, it's likely that Warners might heavily consider keeping June off the streaming platform and release it just in theatres. So this is promising stuff, I guess. Fingers crossed we'll see what happens, but uh, yeah, it has meant that some studios have made a shift in their release dates and moved them back a little bit to see what the market's going to do again. So if it benefits just being in the cinemas as opposed to being a simultaneous release and streaming as well, then obviously that can only be good for our industry. Perry, how on a scale of 1 to 10, how pissed off are you with uh, Warners in general? I was singing Warners praise when we first came out, the first lockdown, and they took the decision to release Tenant. I was really behind everything they did. I was going around saying Warners are the dog's bollocks. They stuck up for us. And then when this... HBO Max deal dropped. I just couldn't believe it. I just couldn't get my head around. I was so short-sighted. But, you know, we're in different times. But I think they've realised now the value of theatrical. And hopefully what we'll see is a shift back to there being a shortened window, which we know is going to happen. And these films going back onto the big screen. And I I can't watch June on a TV. It isn't going to happen. So I've got to watch it at the cinema. So I'm not going to watch it on the telly. Forget it. I watched Kong on my projector at home and I've got Atmos sound, so it was marginally better. But it's not the same as going and watching it and having that shared immersive experience of going into a, an auditorium, sold out screen full of people and just watching something cinematic. So yeah. let's let's hope this happens and they realise and they all make up and something's done in the future so it doesn't happen. And then next, maybe Disney will get the, uh, the hint and they'll... They'll snap out of this ridiculous thing that they're doing. But there you go. That's me. I'm not going to say Yeah, anymore. definitely. I mean, you can already see it in 2022. 
this is not something that's going to continue into next year. And that's that's reported from multiple sources. So yeah, let's hope that June is one of the ones that's kept off the agenda. Godzilla vs. Kong continues to dominate at the global post-pandemic box office. Our current box office total sits at $338 million, which means Warners are actually going to start making money off this property after production and marketing costs are all deducted. Plus Warner Brothers spent money buying out legendary pictures in the first instance in order to put it on HBO Max. So they're getting 100% of that money coming through to them, which is great. And this means that Kaiju vs. COVID picture is now the most successful post-pandemic film to release so far in the domestic US box office, surpassing Tenet's $58 million haul last year. It's currently on track to overtake the global box office figures for Christopher Nolan's confusing spy pick over the next couple of weeks. This is just, the fact that this is happening now is really buoying the industry. People are getting genuinely excited to, to come back. I've read so many opinion pieces now sort of saying that, you know, Hollywood are looking at these numbers, exhibitors are looking at these numbers, and it's like a really positive sign that we are starting to come out of this at last. But yeah, what do you guys think? I think it's incredible news. I think what we saw over in China uh, was amazing and it really makes you think cinema's still alive. People want to go and see it. I think it's great news. And, you know, the people that, I suppose, AT&T, the ones that are now analysing everything and deciding, you know, there's some worth here. We need to get it back into theatres. So I think it's great news, yeah. I think public opinion and, and thought process is definitely changing. I think a year ago, everyone was more than happy with Netflix, Disney, Amazon sitting at home. It's got to the point now where everyone's just had it. They don't want to stare at the four walls. They're no longer satisfied with the little TVs and they want to come out. It's a social gathering. It's seeing stuff on the big screen. It's just leaving the house. The whole public opinion has now changed and it's shifting in our favour and it's very, very exciting. I don't want to go outside of the house with my family to the cinema. I want to go on my own. They've, them fuckers can stay at the house. I can go on my own and watch a film on my own on a big screen and really reveling what it's all about. I don't want to take the family. They can stay in. I've had enough of them. Anyway, Rando. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, Vicky, Jack, Alex, hello if you're listening. <laughs> I was just going to say, it'd be interesting to see what other larger properties, how they do in the Asian market, because obviously Godzilla in particular is very much yeah. skewed towards that market and it's going to get a larger uptake. So it'll be interesting to see the other larger properties that are, that are going to be coming out over the next couple of months to see how they do in comparison. So whether or not it's just because it's a film or if it's because it's Godzilla, but we'll see. It's a huge plus for the industry in that you've seen the markets get buoyed as a result. And there's just a, a positive expectation about where things are going to go going forward. So it can only be a good thing. Yeah, no, definitely talking about that kind of like appetite piece. I was speaking to my family over the weekend and one of them said, oh, I've completed Netflix. I've completed it. <laughs> like, there's nothing else. I did the final boss. It's all done now. Like I, there's nothing else there. But um, yeah, yeah. I thought it was quite funny. Um, and then just finally, Top Gun Maverick, Mission Impossible 7 among the latest Paramount delays. Despite promising signs like the distribution of the COVID-19 vaccines and more theatres opening. The film industry is still facing a number of uncertainties in 2021 as the pandemic is still ongoing. Paramount is the latest studio to announce further delays to their big hitters. So Top Gun Maverick is now out on November 19th in 2021, which was the date set aside for Mission Impossible. So that has slipped into 2022 on the 27th of May. I mean, I was so excited for Mission Impossible. So that's a bit guide that's um, not coming out till next year now. It's shit, but what are you going to do? Top Gun's gone. It's finished. It's completed. It's, it has been scraped. It, it hasn't got to have a lot done to it. So this is pretty disastrous for to moviegoers, especially in that period of July when there's not a lot of can content for some of the majors to play. So it's a shame. Definitely. But I'm, I'm hoping, as with all these sort of most recent slips, this is the last slip to, to happen with the way that the vaccines and everything else is going. <laughs> we, we've said this a lot. <laughs> Oh, 
can't say action or cut, just step in and say action and cut. Amazing, great. So it's now time to turn the spotlight onto our guest. This week is John Perry. John has been in the cinema industry for over 30 years, running both independent and multiplex cinemas around the country. He is currently the head of operations for Picture Our Cinema. John is a huge fan of Asian cinema, martial arts movies, and is even a practitioner of martial arts for over 20 years at the world-renowned Firewalker Gym. He is also a fanatical collector of original film posters, and I think at the last count, you told me you had over 15,000 pieces. It's over to Breen. Hey, John. What started your love of film, and do you remember the first film you saw and which cinema you saw it in? I think I can remember where it was. My granddad took me to see... There were two movies I remember. I was was probably six or seven. One was... Herbie, I think it was Herbie the Love Bug 2. I can't remember its full name, but I remember going and seeing that and having a really good time with my granddad. And then we went to see Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger. Nice. And Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger, they, we did it in, in a strange order because my granddad just turned up at the cinema and we went in and they used to let you in and we watched the end first and we stayed. And what's the beginning? <laughs> yeah. it the wrong way around. And I remember that and having a really good time. But um, as Paul will know, I'm going to say that my fondest memory and the one I will always remember was uh, Star Wars, watching yeah. the watching the ship go over my head as a seven-year-old kid, never seeing anything like it in my life, and being totally hooked. And I just knew something's going to happen here. I'm going to end up in in this industry at some point, mm. doing whatever nice. it is. Fantastic. So could you give our listeners a brief overview of your cinema career and what your current role entails? Well, yes, I started in the late 80s as a, as a projectionist working for National Amusements, which owned showcase cinemas in the UK. I started in a place called Derby and then I ended up working in the Midlands and then I became a relief manager for them. And then I left to do a film course and then I got a job working for an independent cinema at the time. And then I ended up running the independent cinema. And then I got poached by this little independent company that had just started up called Cine UK. Uh, and they had what? <laughs> yeah, I know it's crazy, isn't it? And they had one cinema at the time, which was in Stevenage. So I was taken on to open the cinema and to work at the cinema in Wolverhampton. And that was when I joined Cineworld in 97. And then I became a regional manager for Cineworld Cinemas and I was a regional manager for quite a few years. And then I came over to, to Picture House three just over three years ago to take on the role of head of operations. And what do I do? Well, gentlemen, you know that I have to keep you all in check and make sure you're doing your job. So essentially, it's just making sure that we're delivering the KPIs for the company and that we're offering a really great experience for all the customers and that we're liaising with all the teams to drive the business forward. But yeah, I've been an operator through and through for a very long time and Picture House is a great is a great company to work for. This is going to be a difficult, it's a difficult question to know or answer, but what do you think the future of cinema will look like after the changes that we're seeing in the exhibition industry as a result of the pandemic? Well, we're, uh, shorter windows are going to happen. Luckily for us, uh, you know, there's been a lot of money that's been spent on on cinemas across the country. Everyone's been refurbing. You know, Cineworld have refurbished quite a lot of their sites. Odeon View, Picture House have got new cinemas coming. So, you know, these these new builds are now looking a little bit better and nicer than some of the older ones from back in the day. People want a night out. They want to come and watch a film. They want to get out of the house. They want to have an experience. And like I said earlier, the thing is with going to the cinema, what you've got to remember is it is a shared experience. You cannot replicate that at home. You can't get that immersive feel unless you're a multimillionaire and you've built yourself a, a big screen in your house. But you cannot get that same feeling sitting in the house. And I think, you know, Picture House, what we try to do 
is we we consider ourselves to be sort of local neighborhood cinemas but we're like cathedrals of culture so you can come you can talk film you can have a bit of dwell have a drink have something to eat we're just slightly different from everybody else we're not quite the same as an everyman we're different there's just a community there that i really like that and i think you can't you know you can't do that in your house you know what i mean you come out you have a nice time it's your house I, I think it's a great brand but i would say that i wouldn't know but it is <laughs> great brand. so hammond's already mentioned you're a huge fan of asian cinema is there one country films that you particularly drawn to or a particular genre what? i mean do, and, and do you have a favorite asian it's film so, that's an odd question yeah i know <laughs> odd question yeah i I, I can tell you that when I first got into Asian films was by default. I was working as a projectionist, and believe it or not, I, we used to have to preview every film. We could never put anything on cold. We had to make it up, run it through. And I got this film, and, I, and nobody wanted to watch it. No one had heard anything about it, and it was called Hard Boiled. Oh, okay? So film. I sat on my own at 3 o'clock in the morning on a Thursday. And I put it on. Within 15 minutes, I'm going, what the fuck is this? <laughs> oh, my fucking God. This Chinese guy sliding down a banister with two handguns whilst holding a birdcage, shooting the shit out of everyone. And it just goes more and more and more and more mental. And I come out of it, and I'm like, fuck. I've got to put that back on tomorrow. So I ring a few <laughs> like, like, got to come and watch this film. It's fucking nuts. It's absolutely incredible. I've never seen anything like it. So we watched it again the next morning. We got up and we put it on again. I had a few friends. Although Showcase probably would have fired me for doing that. But I did it anyway. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm going to find out about this guy, a guy called John Wu. And then we tracked down a lot of his other films and started watching them. We're like, holy fuck, this is incredible. <laughs> and, then, and then I knew a friend and he was like, well, if you like John Wu, you want to try watching this? And I was given some Ringo Lam movies. And they were like, well, if you like Hong Kong films, why don't you give Jackie Chan a go? I'm like, who's Jackie Chan? Do you know, have you not seen any Jackie Chan movies? I'm like, I don't know anything about Jackie Chan. And then I was recommended these. And next thing you know, I went down a rabbit hole of, of Asian cinema and I'm watching all these incredible Jackie Chan films. Yes, that you could rip them to pieces for their acting, but the energy yes. and what he brought to the screen and the craziness and, ah, it was just a joy. Um, so. Originally, I would say it was I was massively into Hong Kong movies, and then I, when I did a film course, what happened? I started watching Japanese movies, and then my teacher at the time, his lecturer, was like, "Watch this Akira Kurosawa movie," and then I went, "Oh my god, I can't believe I've never watched any of his movies before," and it just opened up this whole world. And then I went down the Takeshi Kitano route, which was like, "This guy's a stand-up comedian; he's making these crazy films." I watched all those, and then it just rolls into South Korea. And then I got to South Korea and I'm like, fuck, these guys have taken it to the next level. This <laughs> wow. shit, and it was like a 10-year period, and the shit that was coming out of South Korea was just incredible. And so um, I can't really say, but I would, I, I would say that Kurosawa was probably the biggest influence. My favorite movies are probably South Korean movies, but I, I've got to say I love John Woo and I love Jackie Chan so much. Does that answer your question? <laughs> it does. That's a fantastic answer. That's probably if, if next time, John, you can be a touch more enthusiastic for the edit, <laughs> <you're> great. <laughs> As we've mentioned, you have a very extensive original poster collection. What got you started in collecting them? I get myself into trouble here, but here we go. Fuck it. I'll tell you anyway. <laughs> so... <laughs> As a young projectionist working for that said uh, American uh, chain, 
they gave me the joy uh, of collating all the film posters for all their other cinemas. Because what they used to do is, rather than give away free cinema tickets, they used to send poster packs to the cinemas and go, give these away to schools, give these away to people, because we don't want to give out cinema tickets. So they wanted a central place that would take all the posters and then put them together, collate them, and send them all off. So they come in from America... They come to my cinema. Guess who volunteered to put the poster? (laughs) (laughs) I admit it now, after 32 years, I hold my hands up. I was the one that sent all those shit posters to all those multiplex cinemas across the country. Do you know why they were shit? Because I kept all the good ones. (laughs) 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 I started collecting all the good posters, all the good one sheets. And then I knew a few, this sounds a bit dodgy, but I knew a few dealers, as in, memorabilia dealers not dealers dealers and i used to go i'll tell you what i've got three of these one sheets for jurassic park i'll give you these three if you give me an original taxi driver so i used to get people coming and getting stuff from me and i started picking up classic film posters and i thought well i'm i'm going to collect all the ones that i really like so i went through i wanted one for everything that de niro did and everything that you know the usual Pacino, the lot. So I started that way, and then I ended up working in memorabilia affairs. And then what would happen in memorabilia affairs is before they opened to the public, all the other dealers would come along and say, "Oh, do you want to swap this? And do you want to swap that?" And I just started collecting film posters. And then I never let anybody throw any away at any of the cinemas I was working at. And even when I was a, a regional manager and GM, I go around, I go, "What are you doing with that?" And they go, "It's going in the bin." I say, "It's going in my car." So I used to just collect and collect and collect and never threw anything away. And that's why I ended up with, as you said, it used to be 15,000. It's not 15,000 anymore because we had a flood and a lot of them got oh. damaged. Oh, no. Yeah, but, 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 but the whole, whole fire, the real valuable ones I'd got protected in Mylar, so they were fine. But there were quite a few that, unfortunately, I lost. So I probably got about, I don't know, 10,000 maybe. Wow. Fucking wow. It's ridiculous. Could you give the listeners an example of a few of the, the oh. cho- choice pieces in your collection? And is there one in particular that you think that's the one? Out of all of these, that's the one. I think that's a very hard one because I change my mind quite regularly. And I, what I think the, <laughs> one of my favorite ones um, is a Sam Peckinpah movie called Cross of Iron. Oh, yeah. I love the poster. It's, um, it's a dead German in the snow. Mm. Uh, it's great. A Nazi, should I say, not a German. For all our German listeners, we love you. The Nazi <laughs> so much. That one, I've got uh, a couple of original Star Wars ones, wow. um, which are worth quite a lot. One I had restored and uh, put onto linen recently. It's probably, well, I'm not going to tell you what it's worth, but it's worth a lot. A get, couple of Get Carters, the nice. original one sheet, Mean Streets. I've got a couple of versions of Raiders of Lost Ark. I a couple of aliens. I've got every single Bruce Lee one he ever did, which, you know, I'm a massive Bruce Lee fan, so I, I sort of collected them one by one. I've got both versions of the Blade Runner poster as well. I then started collecting um, some of the Mondo posters and the Bottleneck posters when they came out, which are the, the screen-printed versions, which, you know, new illustrators are coming and recommissioned film classics, and I've got some amazing ones there. But I go through phases of what I like, and it's really difficult. A lot of you have seen the images I put up on Instagram and Facebook, but yeah, I've, I've got a lot. But asking me what my favourite is, I think I really, really like the original thing more than anything else. It's just something about it. Just love it. Yeah, yeah nice. Awesome. 
Can we just say when we're talking about film posters quickly that Enzo Sciotti died yesterday and he oh, really? was the original illustrator of a lot of the Dario Argento films. So yeah. he did demons and stuff like that yeah. and he did the uh, Italian Evil Dead and he passed away yesterday and he did some beautiful pieces of work. So God bless him. Oh, okay. yeah. Nice. That's great, John. <laughs> Thanks for that. So on this podcast, we like to ask what people's guilty pleasure is. This is a film that was derided by critics, fans, audience, didn't do any business at the box office, but you bloody love it. Is there a film that you can think of that sort of fills that category? Well, I'll come in and say that this is a really difficult one because I've got lots of guilty pleasures, but I'm going to go with one that when I watched it uh, at first, I didn't like it. I didn't understand it, believe it or not, coming from me because it's it's got an Asian connection. And then as I got a little older, I watched it more and more, and now I absolutely love it. And that film is called Big Trouble in Little China. Oh, oh fantastic! fantastic film. Pleasure. That's just a joy. It, it's it is a joy now, but at the time it was panned when it was released. I remember all of the shit it got when it came out, and I didn't understand it. I didn't get it at first. I hasn't. I didn't quite quite got there with my Asian connection at that point. So it was just, this is a bit stupid. And now I absolutely fucking love it. (laughs) (laughs) That's my guilty pleasure. Uh, Do I get a thumbs well, up or a thumbs yeah, down on that? Big, big thumbs up for that. It's John Carpenter and Kurt Russell. There's nothing yes. wrong with that. It's a bit um, racially insensitive these days, I, from what I hear. But I haven't seen it in years, so it might have dated okay. But uh, I don't oh, know. It is what it is. It's a product of its time. A Jack Burton <laughs> driving racist. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> So moving on into our regular feature, which is our in-review section. And we had two films to review this week, both picked by Mercer. So Mercer, what were your picks? The first film I picked for this podcast was Concrete Cowboy, which is the Netflix film that dropped very recently in 2021. It's directed by Ricky Starb and stars Idris Elba and Caleb McLaughlin. All cowboys were black. Even the Lone Ranger was black. <laughs> Who's the Lone Ranger? Really? <laughs> Are you teaching this boy anything? The history here is deep. You like the Wild West out here. I woke up to the morning sky. Cause I know you. You hops, boy. When I get up off this ground, I should be oh, Yo, yo, what you doing? You want to ride the street life? You can't be in my house. You want to wise up? You welcome back. Welcome back to what? I ain't got no home here. That's your choice. So in this, a teenager discovers the world of urban horseback riding when he moves in with his estranged father in North Philadelphia. Who wants to go first on this? This was largely fine, but it didn't really engage me as much as I thought it would, to be honest. And I'd much rather re-watch Boys in the Hood for telling a very similar story, but without horses. This dragged, I found myself getting quite bored in places. I found the credits more interesting than the film when you realise you're watching the real-life people that were playing the characters. I think the subculture and the history of urban cowboys across America in these modern cities is a much more interesting story than this, which was told quite poorly. An interesting premise, and it looked great on screen, but for me, it fell way short of what it could have delivered. 
Yeah, I think for me, this is a prime example of a film with very well executed individual parts, but the sum of its whole is just missing the mark ever so slightly. Like the cast are fantastic, particularly Caleb McLaughlin in the lead as Cole. I thought he was brilliant. I think it's well shot by um, Minka Father Cole on cinematography duties. And it has this really striking imagery of cowboys riding on these horses in the streets of Philly. That is just a great image. And that itself looks very, very unique. But everything else in this troubled teen finds meaning in active slash community he initially dismisses story <laughs> just feels very tired and I think at its heart it's the script that really lets it down like some of the beats just feel very very stark characters overtly lay the themes of the film into their dialogue and it just feels really really forced like don't get me wrong a, a film doesn't need to be original or reinvent the wheel to be a success but if you are going to do something that's tried and tested Boys in the Hood is a great example of, of something that does this subject matter better you really need to make sure that everything is there before you go into production and the script just really wasn't at all it just made me think of things like yes that film and blind spotting and maybe fruitful station or, or just other films that do, sort of do that father-son strained relationship just a lot lot better Yo! this chuck you're making no friends so watch your hands there's a horse in your house <laughs> Oh, that's you right here. I ain't staying here. Right. Well, I'm ahead of though. Once you step out, that door stays locked till morning. Just, it was very, I was so unengaged by it, and it's too long. It is too yeah. long. It just felt yeah. like and it dragged. You know I'm no stranger to a curse word, but they filled this script which yeah, I think they said fuck 78 times or something throughout this. It just felt unnecessary. Like I said, I think it's just the script really let it down. I've yeah. got two words on my piece of paper for this movie, which was ghetto cowboys and too much shit shoveling is what I wrote. And I, I thought, what the fuck is this all about? I thought this, this is just, I mean, this is just a bit silly. And this sort of a strange father and son story, it didn't really work for me. And in the end, when I found out it was inspired by the real life, I don't know what you want to call them, stable, ghetto, stable Philadelphia society. I don't know. I just <laughs> made a documentary, uh, but it was just a little boring. Mm -hmm. It was okay. Boring. I'm really surprised because I love this film. Oh, there we go. Yeah. over again. we I really enjoyed this film. Yes, you can talk about the same tropes being used and not reinventing the wheel, but you know we'll, we'll come on to Palm Springs in a minute. But for me, it told an engaging story about a, a section of of life that I didn't really know anything about. Like you said, performances I thought were fantastic throughout. Even using the real the real people in, as the characters within this film, their performances were were fantastic. Mm. I really like the score, particularly the beginning. There's the it was almost surreal. There was a the image of you know the urban environment, and then these horses and these guys wearing wearing the cowboy hats. But the the music at the start sort of hinted at a western score, but it was just a, it was also just a bit abstract and a bit surreal as well. And it sort of for me it encapsulated the surreal nature of this existence really well in the first five minutes. I thought mm. that yes, you, you could you know it's not a new story, but how many new stories are there out there? It's just about the telling of it. And for me, the telling worked. I loved the sequence when. 
finally Idris Elba's character, his father, was trying to engage with his son when he told him the story about the origin of his name, when he put the, the John, yeah. Col- John Coltrane track on and went through that sequence. That was so beautifully played by both of them. Incredibly engaging scene. And, and it, it made me do some research afterwards into... And yet, John, I do agree with your point about yeah, a documentary. I totally agree. I would have loved to have seen a documentary about it uh, as well. But it did make me do a bit more research into what these, these communities are, are going through uh, and the fact that they just don't seem to have any any say in, in where they keep getting moved on from and things getting pulled down because of the development. But for me, I, I, I found it a really engaging movie and it whilst not on the same not remotely on the same level it gave me a bit of a feeling like peanut butter falcon in the that type of story it's a in effect it's a small it's a small story but i thought very very well told didn't leave you with the same feeling afterwards you know because you left on a high after peanut butter falcon and it was a bit you know the end it's, it's a bit of a downer in this one but for me yeah it was a different experience i didn't think it was too long i was really engaged with it from start to finish and uh, I, I personally would recommend anybody to to give it a go because i think just based on the performances alone i think it, it, it's really engaging watch i mean i was i was definitely left on a high because when the credits rolled i was glad it was over <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah i mean as i said i think it's component parts like, this is like a sort of two star three star film like the component parts are there but that scene you're talking about with edris and his son that's a perfect example of the actors doing a really great job but the script felt so give me the oscar guys just the way that dialogue was structured it it felt false to me and so I couldn't I couldn't buy into it despite the excellent performances from both of them but I know I know what you mean that the two of them together that is that scene kind of works but it just, again it just felt too posy too showy did they make this to try and get some awards attention and that just never happened I, that's what it felt like to me like it was trying too hard and I think you're right a documentary would be better suited to this story to know more about this place these characters but maybe I came across too harsh like I do think it's a, a fine film I just don't think it's I think it needed to do more to leave an impression yeah the young kid is he's the one from stranger things isn't he oh is he yeah all right but uh i I, like i said earlier i think i really would like to know a little bit more about this community Mm -hmm. and i think so should probably go and make a a documentary about their struggles and how they live because i think that's a far interesting story it's fletcher street yeah fletcher street stables is the is the community that they were involved with all right pick number two i'm sorry about that guys apart from breen no no no, for me (laughs) breen loved it thank you i I really 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 enjoyed it it was a six out of ten yeah i didn't i didn't sit there going this is dreadful i'm worried that we've just i'm worried that we've both come across too negative so the next film I picked was Palm Springs, which is on Amazon Prime in the UK. It was released last year in the US, but it's only just dropped in the UK this week. This is directed by Max Barbaco, and it also stars Andy Samberg, Christian Melotti, and J.K. Simmons. It's going to be a beautiful wedding. Here you are, standing on the precipice of something so much bigger than anyone here. But always remember, you are not alone. I don't think that we met. I'm Sarah. Niles. Hi. Hi. It's going to be a beautiful wedding. Good day so far? Today, tomorrow, it's all the same. You! What is going on? Hey, get out of the water! Guess you followed me. It's one of those infinite time loop situations you might have heard about. That I might have heard about? Yeah. Stuck in a time loop, two wedding guests develop a budding romance whilst living the same day over and over and over and indeed over again. What did we make of this? It's all right. 
I mean, it, again, we talk about tropes and things. I mean, it's difficult, particularly uh, with something these type of romantic comedy regarding a time loop. It's impossible to move away from Groundhog Day. You can't not compare it to it. And, and I tried so hard not to. I loved that they tried to do something different with that format in introducing like a second character that, that came to it later on after the person's been doing this forever. Guess you followed me. What's going on? I tried to stop you. But what is this? When is this? Yeah, about that. So, this is today. Today is yesterday. And tomorrow is also today. It's one of those infinite time loop situations you might have heard about. <laughs> that I might have heard about? Yeah. And there's central performances from the two leads and the J.K. Simmons as the hunter were fantastic. There were some laugh out loud moments. But for me, I, I felt about this probably the way you felt about Concrete Cowboy in that it, it was all right. It's three out of five for me, but not really anymore. It's not the stamp of a film that I, I would really like as a film that I would happily watch again. I've got no interest in watching this again. I did enjoy it, but not fussed about watching it again. That's about as much as I can say about it. So I watched it twice. <laughs> I mean, if, if they'd have called this The Lonely Island Does Groundhog Day, I'm still watching it because I love both. <laughs> I love The Lonely Island and I love Groundhog Day. I thought this was a really fresh take on a very familiar story. I love that more and more people got pulled into the loop because it, it gave a sense of sanity amongst the insanity that Groundhog Day didn't have when it's just Bill Murray going around in a loop. I thought it was acted and directed really well. You get all the glimpses of despair, loneliness, fear, hope, heartbreak. But amongst all of that is a genuinely very, very funny comedy. You realise quickly that Niles, who's played by Sandberg, has been in that loop for possibly decades. You don't know. He mentions like thousands and thousands of times he's been through this loop. It's sex, I assume. Great question. You must, right? I have, but it takes a lot of work. And I try to live my life at this point with as little effort as possible. Huh. Have we roped up? No. At least I don't think so. So, but like, who else? What about Tala? No. But I have tried. May I cut in? It's the first dance. And that's a deal breaker. And that didn't work? It was a big swing. Right. And he's tried everything and done everything. The ongoing war between Sandberg and J.K. Simmons wasn't overplayed at all. And I think that resolved itself beautifully. I thought the runtime was perfect. It was slick, well presented, and ultimately very funny. Much like Groundhog Day, they do everything that we would do if you realize that you could actually live without consequences. I thought this was a great watch. Yeah. Harry? Well, I, I bet Hammond's going to shout at me now, and I have to apologize. I'm not a massive fan of Andy Sandberg. He's, he's very goofy. There's just something about him that winds me up. But I went into this thinking, oh, God, it's an Andy Samberg film. Within 10 minutes, I found myself laughing out aloud quite a lot. Oh, you know it. <laughs> I was massively into it. Yes, seen there, been there, done it, Groundhog Day, whatever. I thoroughly enjoyed this, and it was so much better than I thought it was going to be. And I watched it the next day. Wow. Oh, and nice. I, I've really warmed to this Andy Samberg. Now my daughter's got me watching... Brooklyn. Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Brooklyn Nine-Nine, one of the best shows you'll yeah. ever watch. Good yeah. show. He does have, there's something about him, but I think this worked really well, and it, it, it passed the seven-laugh Mark Kermo test. I laughed a lot. And it was short, it <laughs> yeah. sweet, it wasn't so over funny. long. I love J.K. Simmons as Roy. He made me laugh out loud as well. The girl, I've, no, I've yeah. seen her in something before, but I couldn't figure out what. I thought she was really good, and it, it kind of worked for me. I quite happily watch it again, so big thumbs up. Wow. <laughs> Perry liked something. Hey! Yay! 
It's a lockdown miracle. <laughs> well, not to turn this pod into a bit of a real life Groundhog Day situation, but I am just going to echo exactly what Perry and Hammond said with their correct opinion. I really love this. <laughs> I thought it was a perfect mix of humour and poignancy. And it also has this really dark edge, which gave it a bite, a real bite when those sort of horrific moments play out. And the idea of the mortality of life is, is sort of put there on a screen in a comedy. It's like, it works, but it's still very, very funny. Sandberg and Melotti in the leads are fantastic together. Such, such great chemistry. The intro moment where Sandberg makes his way across the wedding dance floor towards Melotti's character was so well choreographed with him swerving really in and out of other guests, grabbing jinx that are like presented to him at the right time. It was perfect. It was so, so good. It must have taken ages to film. I think the writing on this is so strong. There wasn't like an over-reliance on flashback humor like you get in Brooklyn Nine-Nine. All sort of overly long scenes of improvisation that are then edited down that you get the comedy you get the best takes that way which makes those sort of films feel very very baggy i'm trying to think of the director who does that a lot but i haven't written him down here who's the director of this is 40 Judd Apatow. Judd Apatow. Like, it's not a Judd Apatow approach. Like, there's a very, very tight script in this. Like, it has an extremely tight pace and it just relies on you getting to know those characters and that provides the comedy and it makes mm. all the emotional beats land as well. There aren't many ways to do a fresh take on the Groundhog Day, but this film managed to find a way to do it and I bloody loved it. I thought it was absolutely amazing. I really enjoyed it. Even the little subtle things when uh, she kind of realises she's stuck and she goes to crash the car and he just takes his seatbelt off and puts his head on the dashboard and his last line <laughs> Is, so see you tomorrow <laughs> i think it's so good so it's so, so good. good really well done yeah, yeah yeah great amazing so once again see bringing is the miserable fucker it's not me it's Breen. <laughs> on that one film <laughs> you were the miserable fuckers on concrete cowboy <laughs> fuck you Hammond. <laughs> brilliant anyway yeah that is the catchphrase uh, there it is think of water street and you'll think of films So moving on then to our in-scene question. And this was inspired by Palm Springs. And we want to know what is your favorite comedy with a science fiction setting or twist? Something that's already caused a slight conundrum in our in our chat group this week. Yes, it's difficult because it depends how you define science fiction. There's a massive list. I'm not going to produce a huge list of films that you could go through because initially I was thinking Tremors, but then that's more of a horror film than a science fiction film, yet you could certainly somewhat class it as science fiction. So it's really difficult. So in the end, I've plumped for, and this will be contentious purely simply because of the person it is, I'm plumping for, from 1973, Sleeper by and starring Woody Allen. <laughs> now, uh, whilst it is contentious as a human being that, that he is, his body of work, it's a question of whether you can separate those out. I personally can still do that. And Sleeper, for me, is a perfect example of that early period uh, of his life when he was laugh out loud funny. The human element, if you like, from when you got from Annie Hall onwards, it, that sort of naturalism is, is not there in these films. So Sleeper is about a guy who works in a health food store in New York who by accident gets cryogenically frozen and then thawed out in the future, where the future is being realised that actually junk food is the healthiest food for you. Health food's actually really bad for you. Well, he's fully recovered, except for a few minor kinks. Has he asked for anything special? Yes, this morning for breakfast, uh, he requested something called wheat germ, organic honey, and tiger's milk. <laughs> oh, yes, those are the charm substances that some years ago were felt to contain life-preserving properties. You mean there was no deep fat? No steak or cream pies or hot fudge? Those were thought to be unhealthy, 
Precisely the opposite of what we now know to be true. Incredible. Well, he, uh, he wants to know where he is and what's going on. I think it's time to tell him. And it's about him helping to try and overthrow the powers that be in a sort of 1984-style Big Brother. It's just laugh-out-loud funny. It's some lots of silly visual sight gags, some very clever wordplay. It's a wonderful cast. Diane Keaton's obviously in there, as you would expect, in that early Woody Allen oeuvre. And yeah, it's just a standout funny film, and it's a, it sort of takes shots at sci-fi tropes, for me, in a very, very funny way. And it's just a question of whether you can separate out the man from the work. Sleeper, 1973, is my choice. Cool. All right, nice. John? Well, I, I, it's a difficult one. I agree with Paul when it comes to there's so many genres that cross over that it's difficult. But I, I had a think about this, and I went for a film from 1981 called Time Bandits. Where <laughs> oh, it, uh, was that no. going to be yours, was it, Ben? Sorry. It is on my shortlist, yeah. Uh, which is essentially uh, about a young uh, kid who joins a band uh, of travelling dwarves as they sort of skip across time searching for treasure. Hello, I'm Hood. It's Robin Hood. Good morning. You're, you're all, all robbers. Oh, the best, Mr. Hood. Jolly good. And you're, you're a robber, are you? And do you enjoy robbing then? Well, it helps pay the rent, sir. Ah, ah. And you're a robber too, are you? How long have you been a robber? Four foot one. Good Lord. Jolly good. Four foot one. Yes. Well, that, 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 that is, is a long time, isn't it? It's laugh out loud, brilliant Terry Gilliam fun. I have to tell you, I've got a great Terry Gilliam story. I have to tell you at some point. Do it now. Here's the place Go to do it. it. Go for it. He did a screening for a Terry Gilliam film and he came and he did a Q&A and he was standing there talking and I never never had the courage to speak to him. And I went downstairs to the coffee shop and I'm in Costa. I ring my friend and I went, oh, I've just, I've just seen Terry Gilliam. I've just seen Terry Gilliam. And he's like, what, what did you say to him? I said, I didn't say anything. I was too scared. <laughs> he goes, yeah, yeah. Honestly, I said, he goes, you're making it up. He goes, no, I saw him. I tap on my shoulder. I turn around. Terry Gilliam is in the queue, Costa. And he goes, hello, I'm Terry. <laughs> Takes the phone, speaks to my friend and goes, well, your friend's just Amazing. Terry Gilliam now. <laughs> Give him the phone. You're making it up. And I'm like, I had a cup of coffee with Terry Gilliam. That's, That's my Terry Gilliam. It was fucking incredible. What a, what a nice so guy. Cool. I was nice. shaking throughout my coffee. I couldn't drink it. I'm like, fucking got to get back and tell everyone I've just had a coffee with Terry Gilliam. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, so Time Bandits is mine. There you go. Nice. Great choice. Great choice. That film forever scar me. It's part of my haunted childhood collection because it has such a bleak ending where he's left there with his like charcoal remains of his family in the microwave. <laughs> sort of up there with like Dark Crystal and you know other films that end in horrific. <laughs> Like the torture machine in The Princess Bride. That like, fucking terrified me as a kid. <laughs> oh, the Morlocks in The Time Machine. Fuck. Oh, yeah. 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 Fucking nightmares now. <laughs> so my pick is the Star Wars holiday special from 1970. No, I'm kidding. My... <laughs> no, I was... I mean, I really didn't want to go something obvious here, like Men in Black, Galaxy Quest. Those just feel like pretty obvious choices. So I'm going for something like a deep cut from my past. I haven't seen this film recently, but I remember watching it and fucking loving it when I saw it. And so this is The Man in the White Suit from 1951. It's the Ealing Studios comedy. It's in black and white. The chemist played by Alec Guinness is at a crossroads in his career when he creates a white suit that is impervious to the elements. It cannot stain or wrinkle. At first he is celebrated as a hero, but soon enough, the clothing manufacturers realise that the perfect suit is actually very bad for their business. What's this? I really couldn't say, Mr. Burnley. Mr. Green, perhaps you would explain. Uh, gladly. 
Well, it's, uh, obviously it's, uh... Mr. Wilkins! Yes, sir? Is, uh, this yours? No, sir. Harrison! Well, does it matter very much? Merely a matter of interest. Uh, Father Ingay, could you spare us a moment? What is this? Don't you know? I think it was a special job. Guinness is absolutely impeccable in this film. His comic timing is perfect. And I'm not sure what the what filming their techniques, what was available at the time, I don't know what they used, but this titular suit throughout just is so gorgeously white and it's kept clean during the filming that it just it shines off the screen. It is, uh, it is fantastic. So yeah, I haven't seen it in a few years, as I said, but I remember loving it at the time. Very, very sweet, silly picture. And it has those sort of standard Ealing comedy sort of tropes, but it still holds up today. So yeah, that's The Man in the White Suit from 1951. Fantastic nice. choice, yeah, great movie. For me, there there is only one choice, and as soon as I read the question, I, I I thought of this film and didn't go anywhere else. So I'm going back to 1987 for Spaceballs. Oh uh, yeah. <laughs> Careful, you idiot! I said across her nose, not up it. Sorry, sir. Doing my best. Who made that man a gunner? I did, sir. He's my cousin. Who is he? He's an asshole, sir. I know that. What's his name? That is his name, sir. Asshole, major asshole. And his cousin? He's an asshole too, sir. Gunner's mate, first class, Philip Asshole. How many assholes we got on this ship anyhow? Yo! It's a Mel Brooks film from my childhood that I watched over and over again, and even to this day, doesn't fail to make me laugh. Definitely some jokes in here that probably wouldn't be appreciated by a modern audience, but for me, the film stands up. Nevertheless, it's John Candy, Rick Moranis, Bill Pullman, and of course, Brooks himself. It's a story of a rogue pilot for hire and his trusty sidekick who must rescue a princess to save her planet from the evil space balls. I realised when writing my notes that this film is the reason I've never seen Star Wars, because if you've seen space balls, you don't need to watch Star Wars, because it's a much better <laughs> A version of it dark helmet <laughs> dark helmet exactly yeah that's an opinion isn't it Hammond it's an Not opinion sure I agree with that one indeed but yeah that is my choice Spaceballs from 87 it was on TV not so long ago I think on film 4 and even today it's heavily heavily edited so if you are going to catch this film please try and watch it kind of the, the unedited original version because it's totally worth it you Super. So that is pretty much it for this episode. We just need to know from Paul what we're reviewing on the next one. Okay, right. So both of my choices are from Prime this week. So we're watching, it's just dropped, we're watching Sound of Metal, starring Riz Ahmed. Can't wait. And the second film, it's been there for probably a couple of weeks now. I just haven't got around to watching it. But again, it was another nominee from the BAFTAs, The Mauritanian with Jodie Foster and Benedict Cumberbatch. So those are my two choices for the films in review for next time. Nice. Looking forward to both of those. They sound great. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've been looking forward to Sound of Metal for a long, long time. John, have you seen either of those? Can you give us a quick flash? I've seen them both and they're both fantastic that's it nice so enjoy good science okay so on to the end of pod questioning so after last week where I pulled a breen and laid up a real softball I tried to get a little tougher this week so I want to know which item allegedly appears in every scene of the film Fight Club R2D2 close <laughs> but no cigar <laughs> and that's it yeah that's all from me John thanks so much I understand you're getting busier and busier and busier as we approach the middle of May and hopefully getting all your cinemas back open again Paul, Ben real pleasure as always and I'll 
and over to you guys cool cheers john thanks as always uh, for coming on really really appreciate it uh everybody please be good and if you can't be good be careful please be safe and stay healthy out there just going to plug the socials quickly for everybody so on facebook if you look for forward slash seen this pod on twitter seen this underscore pod and on instagram seen this pod awesome yeah cheers everyone thanks for listening at home if you've made it this far on the pod then you are cherished in my heart i definitely wouldn't just push you out on a streaming platform i'd give you a full proper theatrical release <laughs> for getting this far on the podcast see you on the next episode thanks for inviting me guys i really enjoyed that i hope i didn't upset paul too much this week um but, uh, yeah yeah all of you go and see minari when it comes out it's an absolute classic uh, and then, uh, I'll see you in the future. Every, sing- every single award property will disagree with your opinion, John. <laughs> <laughs> nice. We'll see you on the next episode. You have been listening to Have You Seen This with Paul Breen, Ben Hammond, and myself, Ben Mercer. The main theme is the Godzilla theme tune, remixed by myself, with beats supplied by Lander. Please like and subscribe if you've enjoyed the pod, and please check us out on Facebook and Instagram forward slash SceneThisPod, Scene spelled S-C-E-N-E, All views and opinions are those of their hosts. What's a snoz? Is it snozberry? Is that from Willy Wonka? From Willy Wonka. The snozberries actually taste like snozberries. Huh? Right. Okay. I haven't seen it in a good couple of years. Uh, it's the original one, not the shit Johnny Depp one. No, no. Yeah. I think that was the last one I watched was the, the Depp oh, version, unfortunately. Oh, so, yikes. Yeah, I need to go back and have a snozberry. Please do. Ooh.